I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. They give us peace when we walk through their woodlands. I just love to look for them in the landscape and on walks. Everything is very measured about them. Standing right at the base of it, a very, very old tree, it's probably about a couple of hundred years old, I would say. The trunk is deeply, deeply wrinkled, and there's these huge limbs that lean out over the pathway and over into the rest of the woodland on the left-hand side. The stature and shape can be really, really beautiful. For me, they're just life of the forest, life of the landscape. I'm Guy Barter and you're listening to Gardening with the RHS. The show's had a slight name change, but it's still bursting with tips, tricks and gardening delights. Now, can you guess what the theme for this week's podcast is? Let's hear some more clues. You've got those little the leaves that are a bit like a little cloud on sticks, aren't they, with their rounded lobes. It's inner life is hidden, but I know that inside it's teeming with activity. There's lichen and fungi and insects eating each other, right up to the squawks and scrambling noises that emerge from creatures like owls and squirrels from time to time. Since the dawn of time, we have considered them to be sacred because they've provided housing for us, Of course, our RHS advisors are talking about the much-loved tree, the oak. Britain is thought to have more ancient oaks than the rest of Europe put together. But this doesn't mean we can be complacent. Whether because of road developments, emerging pests or diseases, the ancient trees aren't completely secure in our landscape. You can't just replant a 400-year-old oak. In fact, near our flagship garden at Wisley in Surrey, more than 500 trees, including many oaks, were at risk of being chopped down due to the development of nearby roads. Thankfully, the scheme was modified and the garden was left unscathed. But not all trees are so lucky. I was sad to hear that a centuries-old one near Higham Ferrers in Northamptonshire was recently cut down as part of roadworks there. So for this week's podcast, we're gathering around the grandfather of trees to learn about the oak's significance in history, culture and horticulture, and also discussing how to ensure it continues to be a familiar part of our green isle. Let's start with a few oak facts. Worldwide, there are more than 500 species – and in Britain, two are native, the Cecil Oak and the English Oak. 
They're deciduous and they're big, growing up to 40 metres tall, and you'll probably recognise their round-lobed leaves. Then there's their very distinctive seed, the acorn. At the RHS, we have a close affiliation with oaks, and our garden at Wisley has a long-standing relationship with the tree, as curator Matthew Pottage explains. The original name of Wisley Garden was actually Oakwood, and that part of the garden still exists today, and that is, as the name suggests, because it was full of oak trees. And the garden still today has probably some 900 oaks across the whole estate. Just about everywhere you turn at Wisley, there is an oak tree of varying size, shape, habit. They're beautiful this time of year with that lovely fresh green foliage and they are super again in the autumn when they all go this demerara sugary yellowy thing which is also beautiful on the garden landscape. I think it's probably one of our finest native trees and there's something just very long-term sound you know they're a good stable tree. Even if you're down in Dartmoor and the oak trees are almost bonsai because of the exposed conditions, or you're over in Surrey where they're you know, nearly 100 foot high, they are in all their different shapes, sizes and proportions throughout the British Isles. My first memories of oak trees are growing alongside fields so growing up in Yorkshire in East Yorkshire where it's quite flat and quite open there's a lot of agriculture so generally when you did see an oak it was always in a hedgerow by the side of a field so imagine big fields of barley and wheat hawthorn hedges and then these grand old oaks which must have seen all manner of changes around them over the years sometimes with a big stag head of dead wood sticking out the top Uh, The conditions there are quite open and severe, so those oaks would have to put up with quite a lot. But they were kind of these beautiful living pieces of sculpture in the landscape. There's something quite constant about an oak tree. You know, sycamores, birch, elders, they pop up, they grow, they fall over, they decline. It's, you know, everything happens quite quick. Whereas an oak, you can see the same tree 20, 30 years later, and sometimes they hardly look different at all. The other great thing that gardeners would appreciate working around oak trees is because they're not massively shallow-rooted. They don't suck up all the moisture around them. You can quite successfully garden under an oak tree, and you can use its leaves to break down as leaf mould. That's really lovely to grow things, you know, like woodland perennials, like trilliums and foxgloves, erythroniums, and also understory shrubs such as rhododendrons and azaleas, and that's been done in spades at Wisley. And both Oakwood and Battleston Hill have a lot of oak trees. And once you get them to a height where you can take off the lower branches, you can then start to accommodate other smaller trees underneath them like eucryphias and embothriums, and they love that dapple light that oak trees provide. And oaks don't completely block out all the light from above like a big beech tree can yet they don't let in blazing hot summer sun they do this nice dappled canopy it's that lovely constant father figure in the landscape if you will
Matthew Pottage on his love for the oak. I too love oaks, whether it's the magnificent specimens we have so many of here in Surrey, or the suffering little oaks that are dwarfed by the bad weather on the hillsides of Wales and the west of Britain. But the ancient oak has meant many things to different people throughout history. Some very significant Western texts were written using oak gall ink. We're talking the Magna Carta, Newton's theories and Mozart's music. Throughout the ages, their leaves, bark and acorns were seen as medicinal and were used to treat various ailments such as diarrhoea and kidney stones. Being so entwined with human experience, it's no surprise that the tree has inspired a fair few stories. This is where our next guest comes in. Fiona Stafford is a professor of English at the University of Oxford and she's particularly interested in nature writing. Her book, The Long, Long Life of Trees, explores how they have served humankind. I mean, the obvious example, of course, is Robin Hood in Sherwood Forest. And I think everybody is pretty familiar with that, whether from the Disney film or, depending on how old people are, they have their own sort of version of Robin Hood. But the idea of this band of people living in a forest tends to feature oak trees. And, of course, Sherwood Forest is still, um, there's not much of it left now, but it is still a forest of oak trees. It's an ancient woodland. And in the middle of it, you have the major oak, which has always been associated with the legends of, of Robin Hood. Traditionally, they've always been used as boundary trees on the boundaries of parishes, on the boundaries of farms or estates or whatever. They're very distinctive. When people couldn't read, they were often used as a local landmark, so people would join together. They'd say, right, we'll meet, you at the, we'll meet you at the oak, and that might be where the local lord would address his men each week or something because they knew where to go. Or um, there were gospel oaks, so people would preach at the oaks or say prayers. So they've always had this character as meeting places, and I think that in itself is to do with why they are interesting imaginatively. So if you've got a place where people meet, you've got a place where stories are going to be told. They were also traditionally associated with kind of masculinity, and that's another aspect of the Robin Hood stories. And again, that's because the oak is always going right back to the ancient Romans and Greeks. The oak tree has been associated with the leader of the gods and it's seen as a symbol of strength and endurance. And I think when we see all the pubs called the Royal Oak, which is one of the most popular pub names in this country, that is a reference to Charles II, who very much harnessed these um, associations and the symbolism of the oak tree when he was establishing himself as the king. And part of the reason was that when he escaped to France, once um, the royalist forces had been defeated, he had actually hidden in an oak tree. And this is how he escaped. So when he came back, he made a great deal of this, this story of his, what he would see or as a miraculous escape. And it has a sort of fairy tale quality that the, you know, the lost prince has come back. He's been helped by the forest. 
when he returned to London in 1660, everybody in the crowd was given an oak branch to wave, and the Oak Apple Day is still celebrated in some parts of the country. In centuries past, when Britain's defences and trade and economics, everything really depended on ships, oak trees were hugely important because one of their principal uses was to be made into ships. And a ship like Nelson's HMS Victory, which some people will have seen at Portsmouth, a ship of that size would require something like 2,000 mature oaks. Uh, so people needed to be planting them and growing them, and they were really kind of big business. So timber was incredibly valuable, oak timber especially. I'm very fortunate, actually, because of living in the country. I see beautiful oak trees every single morning. Um, I have a number of different walks. I take my dog, and most of them feature a magnificent oak tree because I live in an area where oak trees uh, grow naturally and um, they grow to a great size, so they are very beautiful. And it's just an absolutely brilliant start to the day you see them standing against the light and they do look different every day depending on the light and the mist and the atmosphere but they also have um, such low branches that you can touch the twigs uh, so you can actually kind of hold hands with an oak tree if you want to and it is a good feeling you can actually kind of feel that it's alive Fiona Stafford. I like Fiona's idea of holding hands with an oak tree as a way of connecting with their incredible history. And if you were to plant one of these trees, you wouldn't just be planting it for you to enjoy, but for generations and generations to come. So if, like me, you're listening and wondering how to get an oak tree into your own garden, our next guests are here to help. My fellow presenter Fiona Davison spoke to RHS gardening advisor Nikki Barker about how to leave an oak tree legacy. Nikki, can you grow oaks in your garden or are they just too big? You can grow them in your garden. They are actually really quite good for pollarding, so you could potentially keep them quite small, two to three metres high if you pollard them every year. And we pollard lots of different trees, but I think the main reason we don't pollard oaks is because it didn't really have any commercial value, maybe. Whereas pollarding things like ash and hazel did. But you can bonsai them, so there's no reason why you can't pollard them. So what does pollarding mean? So pollarding means that you reduce the height of a tree each year to a specific point in the trunk. So street trees are often pollarded. So that's things like London plains, lime trees. They're pollarded annually. So they're cut back to what become almost these knobbly side shoots. And then they grow off each year. So usually from, say, about 1.8 to 2 metres high, sometimes taller. And they're cut back to that height. That's where the crown is. And then each year they put out all their new growth. And then the following year in the winter, that's cut back. So that you're controlling and managing the height of the tree while it still has a trunk. And presumably you'd still get a lot of the kind of biodiversity benefits. Absolutely. 
There's literally thousands of species that use oak. There's over 2,300 species of animal and invertebrate that use oak trees. And there's something like 329 species that are utterly dependent on oak and a further 200-odd that are highly dependent. So they're really important for our biodiversity, even more so when they're dead, interestingly. So where's the best place to plant them? How do you get the best out of them if you are going to do this? They will grow in sun or partial shade. As long as it's not waterlogged soil, they'll grow pretty much anywhere. They're not soil-type fussy, which is why they're so widespread in this country. And they don't require anything done to them to grow them particularly. They just grow. They're really successful plants. So what pests and diseases do we need to be aware of? Well, they get lots of pests and diseases, some of which they get lots of aphids, lots of caterpillars, leaf mining, moths, oak gall, wasps and all sorts of things. But they're very good at defending themselves against these types of pests. Um, And also those types of pests are things that our natural predators will eat anyway. So it's all part of the ecosystem with most of them. And if you think like the oak gall wasp, the gall that it produces was what we used to make ink for hundreds of years. So there's really good things about those pests and diseases, bizarrely. But the main problems are things like oak processionary moth, which was first found in this country, I think it's about 2005. So that's become quite prevalent in London and Surrey. It defoliates the tree and obviously weakens it. But the caterpillar is quite highly toxic. It's an irritant to not just your skin, it's a respiratory irritant as well. So if ever you do see the caterpillar of oak processionary moth, then it should always be reported. We've also got other problems with oak decline, chronic oak dieback. There's a combination of factors that have actually been around for probably a hundred years. One good thing is we don't particularly suffer too much from sudden oak death, which is a big problem in America. But even with all those problems, it sounds like it's a tree that, you know, if we can grow it, we should really try to. And it's really nice as well to hear about the way you could grow them in your garden, because in the library, we've got some lovely books, I mean, dating back to early 1600s, telling great landowners you must plant oak for the national defence because you can build ships out of it build the royal navy up out of the oaks that you'll plant in a hundred years so it's nice that we could carry that tradition on they live such a long time and they've been so important in our history and um, um, my floor joists and my roof joists are, are made of old oak beams they provide so much for us and they're so important for our biodiversity. Uh, They live for a hugely long time and the oldest one in this country is over a thousand years old and also they can get enormous but don't be put off by that. If you want to try growing one even if it's only successful for sort of 20 years it's still worth doing. You're still encouraging all of that biodiversity into your garden. You don't have to let it get to 40 metres, which I think is the tallest one in this country. If you see a mature oak in a native hedgerow in this country, 
That was selected by someone not to be cut back. Somebody left that when they were hedge laying. That was a conscious decision that they would let that grow as a tree to provide shade. So you're walking in the shade of something that two, three, four, five hundred years ago, someone made a decision to let that one grow as a tree. That's a pretty amazing thought. Great tips from Nicky there. There's a special oak in my life. It lives in the field in southwest Wiltshire, and once, when I was very young, I went out there to gather acorns. I don't know why children have these strange fancies, and I've always liked that oak tree ever since. It's a magnificent one. For more information on the topics we talked about in today's show, head to rhs.org.uk slash podcast. Next week, we'll be going from plot to plate. Gooseberries are a lovely, small fruit. They come in different colours, so you can get them in green or red, slightly different flavours. They're just incredible. So if you have a tricky grow-your-own dilemma, or you're looking to start your own veg plot or herb garden, make sure you listen then. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.